0: Is there a future where The Sopranos will one day be lost by newer generations? Perhaps in the oversaturation of streaming services and critically acclaimed TV like Tears and Rain. Welcome to Josh Hasn't Seen The Sopranos. I'm Jared Backins, and I'm joined by my two millennial co-hosts, Drew Madden and Josh Fink, as we go through each episode to uncover if The Sopranos should still be considered the best. It's good to be in something from the ground floor. Even though some consider 2020 the golden age of TV, I get the feeling we came in too late for that. We came in at the end. The best is over. Josh hasn't seen The Sopranos. Here we go. All right. Welcome to Josh hasn't seen The Sopranos episode five, college. This is Jared. I'm here with Drew and Josh. Josh, I'm trying to get a picture. You mentioned last week that you read Wikipedia after watching each episode. Are you still doing that?
1: I do uh, mainly just before the podcast To It has a very short synopsis just to make sure that, you know, I, I'm pretty fresh and, uh, helps me get the characters down a little bit more because they do have the cast of the episode. Um, But they don't, they don't go into anything uh, of, you know, future episodes. Yeah. No future episodes, no analysis. It's just straight factual stuff. So I I find it pretty helpful and uh, no, no spoilers ahead as of yet. So
0: I think that's, that's fairly safe. I was today. I was online and I was in YouTube Uh, is like sometimes I'm just like pulling up a clip or something like that. And, Man, that is riddled with spoilers in the in the titles of everything. So I'm just like, sub, I'm just nervous that you'll start typing in like the episode name, and then a spoiler is going to come out, and you're going to get it. Um, one option I could email you a Word doc of the Wikipedia entry each week if if we think it's getting too
1: too risky to do that. <laughs> I think as of now we're good, but uh, if down the road I get a little feel like I'm spoiling myself. Uh, I'll, I'll we might have to resort to that but I think we're good for now can I uh, nervous. can I interject
2: here for a second
1: yes interject
2: um I'm watching it on DVD right and it's a 90s <laughs> DVD so it's got like the episodes five six seven eight right at the top and then at the bottom right it's just like plays clips of the episodes and it's just like a fucking reel of spoilers I'm like why <laughs> <laughs> do you do this this is. So dumb.
0: Uh, Whose idea was that? I don't know. <laughs> they're like, and they're like, we'll, all right, let's just play all the big We'll series. get into this,
2: but it shows multiple parts with Father Phil and uh, Carmella. And you're just like, hello. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I don't know. It's just such a 90s thing.
0: I like how you're taking it way back, though. You're You're just like removing yourself from the internet altogether. You're just going with the DVDs. <laughs> I mean, did you did you, did you remember this episode when we were when you were watching it this week? Yeah, I did. The other ones, are you remembering? Sometimes,
2: like uh, parts. But I was like, when I remember the first time I watched this. I was like fresh shoulder dislocation, um, probably some pain pills, and uh, some <laughs> forgetting Dumbledore, uh, <laughs> left handed <laughs> cigarettes, so.
0: So this, I want to really focus on, we'll, we'll get into the actual episode, but first I want to define like what we all think an antihero is. They're so prominent in TV today. Everyone talks about, oh, your show needs to have like this antihero. That's what people are attracted to. But I mean, Tony really started that for this, the golden age of TV that, that we're experiencing right now. And so um, I'll start with, so on Wikipedia what they say is just a main character in a story who lacks conventional heroic qualities and attributes such as idealism, courage, and morality. But Josh, how would you define an anti-hero? Anything to add to that?
1: I would say just more self-centered, uh, probably sociopath tendencies, uh, trying to achieve his own goal, whatever that is, usually a morally corrupt goal <laughs> um, mm-hmm. by any means necessary. And doesn't really care about much. Um, it seems like a lot of antiheroes we do see on TV for the most part, it seems like on the surface, they kind of care about their family. Um, you know, like for example, breaking bad. I know we always compare, uh, Tony to Walter white, like, well clearly cares about his family, but at the same time, like his relationship with his wife sours and basically becomes almost a hostage situation. And I could see that happening with, uh, Tony and Carmela. It's like, well, oh, he loves her in a way, his own way, maybe, but he's obviously out screwing around and uh, lies to her constantly. So it almost seems like their marriage is deteriorating really quickly into just a, an agreement to live in, under the same roof. So um, yeah. I don't know if that has to be an antihero where they kind of care about their family. But it definitely seems like a, a common theme recently.
0: It creates a, a nice contradiction. And I think you made a good point that not everyone defines it as but morally corrupt goal. And I think that it, it was – I mean, antiheroes were very prevalent in books and film, especially like foreign movies and things like that and westerns. But in TV, it was – TV was always a safe place for people. They'd come home. They'd be able to watch something generally light or at least a hero that has a distinguishable or um, or good goal to go after. But I think morally corrupt is, is a good distinction. You mentioned sociopath too, and I think that's accurate, but I'm always – I always forget what the definition of sociopath is.
1: Definitely haven't talked, looked at the Merriam-Webster definition, but I've always thought of sociopath as someone who will attain their goals no matter what the consequence to the people around them or the relationships. You know, like someone will, who will just climb the corporate ladder but constantly burn bridges and screw people over and lie and cheat just to, just to get to the end goal.
0: There, I think of a lot of like how we're watching Tony and he's constantly lying and we're wondering what is true and what isn't like as the viewer i've had a hard time identifying like a lot of the things that he says if it's true or not and i i don't think i had that same ambiguity or i know i didn't when i was watching breaking bad we knew when walter was lying when he wasn't really you know he's lying to his family and then he goes off and he, he cooks meth or whatever we we knew that and tony I'm, I'm not really sure about that i think another thing too as we're watching this creating a character with contradictions josh you talked about that where Tony cares about his family. Walter White loves his family or Tony loves animals. Uh, but then he goes and and he kills someone the next episode too. So for the writers, when they're building an anti-hero, I think it's really important to have contradictions in that character. That's distinguishable or that's different than having confusing characters. And I think in a lot of TV shows that try to mimic Tony and try to mimic The Sopranos, they created confusing characters. Uh, what I could think of is I mean, we're going to be talking about Breaking Bad and Walter White a lot this episode because he's obviously exists because of Tony Soprano. But I was kind of confused with a lot of Walter's actions in the first, especially the first couple seasons of Breaking Bad. He seemed erratic. The writers said, oh, it was because, you know, he's going through all this emotional turmoil and stuff like that. But you shouldn't you shouldn't feel confused by their actions. And I I think people like Tony Soprano, Don Draper, they had contradictory contradictory actions, but they I always kind of understood where they were coming from. And I think that's that's very important. And the other distinction I think or what's important in an anti-hero is everyone talks like, oh, you want you want the hero or the anti-hero to have likable traits. And I don't think that's important at all. I think you need to have them to be relatable in some areas, but they don't need to be likable at all. Some of the best characters and some of the characters I enjoy watching the most and we're going to get into a couple that haven't been introduced in the Sopranos yeah. yet. They have no likable traits, but I love every time they're on the screen just because they're so it's just a joy to watch how they, you know, upend everything around them. So I think maybe relating to that is good, but likability is, is not essential.
2: What about like likable likable moments? Like when Tony's stapling the
0: <laughs>
2: stapling um I'm totally blanking on Mikey. Team. Yeah, Mikey. Yeah. And he says, "Oh, free tailoring. It's like that's a like, you know, it's like funny." So, I think all all antiheroes have these like likable moments where even if they are being being a dick or something, it's important that you get some pleasure out of their company, even if that's like, you know, just watching them on TV.
1: I agree with that. I was gonna say, I think another thing that I find enjoyable about an antihero is even though they don't conform to, you know, the society's moral code, they create their own in a way. Like Tony, I mean, obviously he's following the mob, code and like in this episode kills the snitch spoiler sorry (laughs) It's okay we're talking about the episode yeah Yeah. (laughs) um and so you know i kind of got a sense of fulfillment like oh okay you know like as bad as he is he's still sticking up for the code of the mob you know he he does have a line that he's gonna i mean i don't Mm -hmm. know if that's the right expression not cross the line but he's gonna live up to what needs to be done you know he has taken his daughter to the schools to go go visit so it's like he is you know fulfilling his familial duty so he has a obviously a very curvy moral compass and and line but you know it it seems like most anti-heroes create their own and then obviously move the line with with certain justifications uh as the show develops but uh i always get a little bit of enjoyment when they kind of stick to their what they perceive as their own morals it's like okay like yeah he is a really messed up guy but I'm glad he did that because that was kind of the right thing to do in a way. I think that's a good
0: distinction that you mentioned. And I think a lot of series try to emulate a, he- a he- anti-hero that does have that moral code. I'm going to argue that that's not necessary and actually, at times, can take away from the character. Do you have a good example of that? So, spoilers for Breaking Bad. Uh, Breaking Bad, you know, we tend to like Walter because, oh, he's this great anti-hero. He's, you know, doing these horrible things but he's doing it to take care of his family and i think that actually that weakened the character what made him you know kind of come into his own at the end was he realized you know i'm doing this for myself this was actually a self-centered endeavor you know he mentions that to skyler at the end of at the end of breaking bad and i think that that was an important that was an important moment when we realized oh this wasn't maybe for his family he was just you know very self-centered and egotistical about this i think a character might not seem as evil if We'll get into you know when uh, Tony whacks uh, the snitch in this episode too, but the snitch is not really a likable guy. So like you said, Josh, we're okay with it, but I'm fascinated by the character that can get away with the most evil thing with the audience still being behind them. And I think characters can go a lot farther than networks and audiences think they can. Like they can do a lot more evil things if they're written well that they can come back from. Does that make sense? No, it does make sense. I think that's probably good we have sort of what we we feel is an antihero we can start talking about the episode let's first go what was the core of this this chapter of the sopranos
1: sure I, um i came up with con- uh, confessions have consequences oh all right all right tony kind of confesses he's in the mob uh, meadow confesses she's done speed that kind of Brings them closer, but at the same time Tony's like, Oh well, she knows so I can now go do whatever I want. <laughs> you know, like Carmelo is confessing to the priest, and the priest is, you know, hitting on her. That was an awkward scene, but um <laughs> Yeah, and then the priest kind of confesses too. So it's like it really thinking it's freeing your soul, but at the same time it also can change your life forever. I love it. Drew, what about you?
2: I had um, Sopranos' family wears one face to some and another face to others.
0: Hawthorne over here. All right. So we actually got three different things out of this, which I love too. So I wrote The Death of TV. This was a turning point for the series, for all TV to come after it, this episode right here. Big picture. When when I say that, like this was the turning point in the episode. Josh, do you know what made it a turning point or is this obvious to you this came out in 1999 so i think it's we're inundated with this in tv now but do you know why at the time it was so monumental
1: i really don't uh, i'm trying to think through the episode but uh yeah maybe That's it's just really
0: fascinating yeah i don't yeah. either
1: so it was the fact that
0: the protagonist of the series killed somebody in the show hbo was against that no one wanted no one wanted the sopranos to do that because they had worked up and built tony into you know a sympathetic character in these first few episodes now we see our protagonists all the time killing people, right? I, I think of this episode, like, College for the Sopranos was like the Chinese restaurant was for Seinfeld. Are you guys familiar with that episode of Seinfeld? hmm No, I'm not. Do you remember it, Josh, or you want to fill Drew
1: in? Yeah, from what I remember, if it's the correct episode, uh, the whole cast of Seinfeld, you know, Jerry, Elaine, George, I'm not sure if Kramer's there, you go to this Chinese restaurant and try to get a table, and it's just taking forever and the whole episode just takes place in the waiting room (laughs) of the restaurant and and they're able to fill you know the 22 minutes or whatever the whole episode just by the interactions of themselves really and the hostess trying to get a table i think what you're getting at jared was like the first time it was basically just all one location for the whole for the whole show
2: are there scenes does it cut in and out Yeah.
0: It cuts. It cuts. It it cuts. Like they, they're moving around. You, you'll go with like George at the payphone, Jerry at the, you know, trying to talk to the host or talking to Elaine. So it cuts, but yeah, that's exactly right, Josh. And you know, Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld were adamant about this. They're like, this is what the show is. It's going to be the content. It's going to be what they pitched it as, you know, a show about nothing. And the network NBC was like, no, we, we can't air this. And so they actually saved it. It was for it was season two of the Seinfeld out of the nine seasons. And they wouldn't air it when it was supposed to in the slot. They were nervous about it. They aired it later in the season and, and that changed things. So that became, you know, what Seinfeld was. So as a Seinfeld episode, it's not really, it's okay. And I think this one too, you know, as a Sopranos episode, it's okay. It still has so much more to grow, but it, this is what the show is going to be. It, up until now, it was kind of a, it was kind of a funny version of, of Goodfellas, but Tony actually killing someone on the air changed the DNA of the series from that point. I think I I thought of a couple examples of this too. I was thinking of in, in sports, what was greater the, the person to create maybe in like Michael Jordan, creating a fadeaway jumper. Is that better? Or is it maybe someone else who, who mimics that and maybe does it more effectively. Michael Jordan might not be a good example, but maybe like the step back three or something like that, or Steph Curry pulling up from, you know, five feet behind the three-point arc. In the 90s, they'd be like, no, you, you can't do that. That's not an efficient shot. And now everyone's doing it.
2: You mean like James James Harden taking five steps and, not <laughs> just, and then throwing the ball?
0: <laughs> We're going to have to start allowing that. That, uh, that was just way too cool. All right, you can take five steps now. It's not traveling. <laughs> That's exactly what I mean. <laughs> because this is a significant episode in the series, I want to talk just a little bit more about it, its accolades when it did come out. So what makes it special too, is it's self-contained, right? Like you didn't have to really see the previous episodes. It might've helped, but it, it tells really a full, a full story in this episode here. And that was what David Chase, the creator of Sopranos really wanted. He wanted these to be mini movies, one hour long movies in a way. And of course there'd be the season arcs over the whole series, but he wanted it to be approachable. He wanted, and this works probably in a non binging culture when things are coming out every week. He wanted someone new to be able to come in and sit in and watch The Sopranos. I think people now, in TV shows now, creators and writers think, oh, that's not a complicated way to do it. You, you want to have these long, complicated stories over the course of the whole series. And I disagree. I think the digestible one hour makes this show very approachable. So you do get this this strong audience that way. But you do have those season arcs too that someone who's coming in for just that one episode might not understand that season arc. And that's okay because they have all that content from that one week. But then, you know, the recurring fans are still coming too for those season stories. So I think it was a really, really smart way to handle the show.
2: Yeah, that's interesting because so many times when you walk into your friends watching a show now, you're just like, what the (laughs) fuck is going (laughs) on? You know, and you just, I remember like watching Game of Thrones and just being like, no. I'm not watching this show and then becoming a huge fan. It took me a while to get into Game of Thrones. Yeah. So many, um, so many shows. It's just like the, the ending, you know, it'll start the second, mm. you know, it's like the same scene at the, the start of the next episode.
0: That is the sign of, that is a sign of weak. Right. This is my hot take. That's a sign of weak writing. In my opinion, when they leave an episode on a cliffhanger, it's like, is that what it takes to get people to come back to the show? You need to leave a cliffhanger. Like, it's like a restaurant saying you can't have you can't have dessert until you come back. Like, oh, I hope you enjoyed this, but you can't have your dessert unless you come back here again. Uh, God help a writer if that's how they have to end a after TV show. <laughs> and like flaming shots, hot take, shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> and there are exceptions to this, so let me think of two examples: a good one and a bad one. All right, I I have them. So. First spoilers for season one of Game of Thrones. The first is, you guys might remember this, end of episode nine, Ned Stark gets killed. Episode 10 still occurs after that. So episode nine ends with Ned getting killed, right? Um, I think that was good. That, That was set up. That made sense with the linearity of the first season of Game of Thrones, which was awesome. We reached the point at the end of the episode where he was killed. It wasn't thrown in there to make it, overly exciting oh, like oh you have to come back for more it was the it was the pace of the show and they came back in episode 10 and, and resolved things too they didn't even end the season on that cliffhanger so i think that was how it's supposed to be done that was well done the other example is do you guys so this is spoilers for breaking bad season two you guys remember they start this whole season there's debris and like trash or not trash like Like mechanical parts in the Walter White lawn, and you're like, What is this? in the intro, and they keep recurring this, they keep showing this throughout the the season. At the end of the season, you realize two airplanes crashed over the wall, the White House, and littered this debris over there. Do you guys remember that part of Breaking Bad? Yeah, yeah. So, this was just really a gimmick this whole season. They are showing you these things, they're making you seem like a meth lab or something blew up in this yard when. A really obscure thing happened they crashed two planes over their house which i don't know if you guys remember how that happened it was yeah, the air traffic controller's
1: dad her daughter died the pilot, the pilots were on meth <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> waltz waltz <stole laughs> them death
0: to pilots for god's sakes <laughs> <laughs> it came back to him I'm sorry, <laughs> but as much as I love Breaking Bad, this was the biggest pitfall of the series. I thought it was so dumb and they left you on like a cliffhanger like, oh, it's the meth lab. Oh, like Walt's in trouble. And then they just change that and be like, oh, no, it's two airplanes that crashed over their house. So everyone's <laughs> okay, except the people in the airplanes. But uh, I thought that was that was really dumb. And of course, the series recovered from that. But those are my two examples. Dad, what were we even talking about? Okay, so last things on, on accolades of this. So at the Emmys, there's five nominations for Best TV Show Drama Writing. And so The Sopranos in its first year, so these are the 1999 Emmys, it was nominated four different episodes were four out of five of those nominees. I think like The West Wing or something was the fifth. But this episode won for Best Writing for the series that year. And this is routinely ranked as one of the best TV episodes of any series all time. For me, I think it's probably in the top half of The Sopranos. Like I said, you know, it gets much more complicated and more complex from here. And then Edie Falco, who plays Carmela, she won Best Actress Emmy. And they nominate you, if you're nominated, they nominate you for a particular episode. So she was nominated for this episode and, and she won for it, which she's awesome in it. Do you guys, can you guys think of any other similar... Anti heroes are protagonists to Tony. I know he mentioned a couple. Obviously, Walter White. What well, is the main character of Mad Men? Don Draper. Yeah, Don Draper. Anyone in
2: Game of Thrones? Jamie, Jamie Lannister. Yeah. Maybe Tyrion Lannister, but he's good for most of it.
0: Yeah, they don't really make him bad, do they?
2: He's a little, I don't know. It's a little promiscuous, <laughs> but that's not bad.
0: <laughs> I think Walter White. Don Draper are good examples, and that's who he's routinely compared to. Uh, and The Wire, who's
2: the Mc- McNulty, yeah. he's just like a fuck up, you know. And then you're just like, he gets his act together, then he starts fucking up again, and you're just like, God, dude, <laughs> with the drinking, are you having fun yet? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, that brings up Josh's point, though. Like, his reasons for his goals are bad, like, it's he's very egotistical, but his actual goals of, or his. He doesn't have morally questionable goals. Like he does want to solve crime, solve murder. It's an ego thing for him. But I think some would consider him an anti-hero. I don't know by our definition. if. Yeah, it's not like you consider one?
2: I, I would agree, not by our definition.
0: All right. So for the episode starts off on campus. Tony's waiting for Meadow to come out. She comes out on the campus. She starts telling him about the school. They're on college visits here. He makes an insensitive joke about India, which I picked up on because I think it's you see this either generational difference or this education difference or something where Meadow and Tony are already not really seeing eye to eye on everything. Um, Like she thinks it's an immature joke and here's her, her dad here. Drew, does your dad ever tell immature jokes? (laughs) Uh, Sometimes. (laughs) So maybe it's relatable too. (laughs) But they're, they're driving in Maine onto the, the next, onto the next college and, This is where Meadow asks Tony if he's in the mafia. He gets defensive right away, but then he does admit that some of his money comes from illegal gambling. It's weird he mentions The Godfather, which you guys know how I feel about this, but would you do that if you just told your kid you were in The Mob? Like, oh, here's this mob movie that's actually really violent. Let me talk to you about it. I think he was going kind of a little too full board there. What do you think of, Josh, what do you think of Meadow says she thinks or she thinks it's cool, or she's okay with Tony being in the mafia because other dads are full of shit, like big tobacco or whatever. Do you think she's right? Or do you think she's stretching there?
1: She's right to an extent. I mean, I think she's happy that he actually told her the truth where most other kids just believe the hype that, oh, my dad's an attorney. Oh, it turns out he's, you know, a criminal defense attorney for this gang. So it's like, oh, that's not really a good serving a public service but it's not really like a, <laughs> something to be super proud of or like yeah big tobacco so you know even though he is living a facade to the public he just opened up to meadow so even though she probably doesn't like that he's in the mob you know as as they as she says later on in the episode or in the car ride you know I'm, I'm glad we can have this type of relationship even though she has just seen like a keyhole's worth of of what tony really is right. um but yeah i mean I think people respect when somebody is being honest and genuine and uh, not hiding behind something. I mean, like you see it all the time in politics these days, like everybody's trying to get behind a certain cause or this or that. And then they just get exposed for being a total hypocrite Um, where the person who just stands firm, like they'll take the heat from one side, but people are like, okay, well I actually kind of respect that. So I don't know. I think that, I think the American people, Uh, in general just kind of like somebody who who is truthful you even see it in sports like when alex rodriguez finally just confessed like yeah i took steroids people are like okay cool like you told the (laughs) truth but like barry bonds has never really come out so he's still like hated and
0: really i don't follow baseball at all other than i know all those guys were probably
1: juiced up so people are cool with a rod now oh he has had the biggest career 180 (laughs) Like probably in 2013, he's like the most hated man in baseball. He got banned for a whole year. And then now he's doing color commentary for ESPN and everybody loves his analysis. And he's got his own podcast and he's got his own little venture capital firm and people are just eating it up. It's just like the biggest career 180.
0: I always think it's funny... I think it's like the, the two-week rule rule that celebrities live by. Maybe not for something as substantial as A-Rod, but like if there's any scandal or whatever, they're just like, stay off the internet for two weeks and everyone will forget about it or the next thing will come. And it's like, what kind of fantasy world do you guys live in? <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Um, oh, yeah. So she thinks other, other dads are full of shit too. I think part of this is she's even trying to rationalize, okay, my dad's a mob boss. Everyone's just like kind of trying to rationalize, oh, this is the... The career he's in next at a gas station tony's on the pay phone with his russian gumar she's upset because her cousin got married you know her leg fell off in the the gap store and he carries out like a knight in white satin armor which i thought was just hilarious so he's had enough with his gumar he calls carmella but then he catches he sees someone he knows in the uh, filling up gas there and so he hangs up with carmella quickly he's hurrying to the car he calls out for meadow to hurry over and speeds off after this guy did you josh did you have like an inclination of what was going
1: on or who that guy might have been i at the time no uh my first thought was man carmelo is just or not carmelo meadow is just getting getting friendly with anybody she can come across with her dad right there i thought that was kind of interesting um (laughs) but uh but no, i was like the way he reacted it definitely sounded like somebody he didn't want to see um so i i was definitely suspicious right off the bat
0: But then he just obviously starts speeding off after this guy driving super more recklessly than he probably needs to. Uh, There's some some weird editing things where Meadow's like, Dad, turn, turn. And he's just not saying anything and then doesn't turn. Um, So I thought that was a bit silly. But then uh, gets the plates off the guy. He notices them. He calls uh, Christopher who's back in New Jersey at the bottom being he calls him from a payphone, tells him to call him back calls him back and Tony gives this story of uh, Febby Petrullio this guy who back in the day ratted on a bunch of the Soprano associates and a lot of guys went to jail for it and Tony even says you know my father never really recovered from that Tony's father who's passed away so Tony hates this guy to say the least like he sort of you know responsible for Tony's father dying Christopher asking who this guy is is totally for the audience, too. That was, you know, a writer maneuver. Like, let's bring in a character who doesn't know so that they can ask about it. We see Carmela's sick. AJ and Carmela are at home at the Soprano household. So first, AJ brings Carmela over breakfast. Then he goes off to a
1: friend's house. Later in the day... Hold on, I have a quick question about that scene. When he goes, Mom, you wanted it poached. That was clearly a hard-boiled egg. Well, she doesn't eat it, right? Yeah, but he said, oh, you wanted a poached egg and it looked like a hard-boiled egg that's there's like a difference between the two right what's a poached egg that's like what's on a eggs benedict right a poached egg is what
2: none of us know how to make and she's asking me <laughs> 10 <a> year old degenerate
0: <laughs> we're we're aj we're the millennials here we're all aj we're, we're just playing mario kart and don't know what a poached egg is and like oh that's been
2: boiling for about two hours
0: i mean i've cooked so many
2: fucking eggs and i've never cooked a poached egg
0: so father phil comes over so we meet we met father phil in the pilot he was actually played by a different actor but we meet father phil or he comes over carmela goes and hurries and freshens up real quick and he tells her he has a jones for her baked ziti which i can't say i've heard that word jones used like that before drew do you know what ziti is yeah i remember
2: i asked about it and I and I have heard some people talk about Jonesin.
1: Yeah, like, oh I'm Jonesin for like a beer right now. Yeah. Something. Seemed inappropriate for a
0: priest to say Jones. <laughs> yeah,
1: it kinda has like a <laughs>
0: well, well if you think that's bad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm Jonesin for some of that sacrament wine.
1: <laughs> some of that baked ziti, eh? You know what I
0: mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's what a what a great interact. I mean it's just really Really well done. And so Tony and Meadow are at dinner. There's a point here, Tony's still asking her, you know, how she feels about the information he revealed about being the mob. mob. And he's rationalizing it like he's doing everything else. Like any great anti-hero is rationalizing that their acts are maybe not as evil as they're made out to be. So he says, you know, he's in the mob because of the Italian people didn't have many options, which might be partially true, but she – you know, kind of one, one ups them and says, you know, like Mario Cuomo, who was the governor of governor of New York, and then Andrew Cuomo, and uh, who's the guy i Chris Cuomo's father, too. So it's, you know, obviously, an important Italian American family that she just throws that back at him. But in this moment, too, Meadow confesses that she did speed for the first time, Tony loses it for a second, but then reflects on a moment, too. And I think is a very real parental moment when he's, you know, I thought I would have known, you know, this was right under my nose. And it's, this moment of you don't know everything that's going on and, and your daughter's growing up. Shout out. Tony's wearing a suit to dinner. You really only see that probably in the nineties, early two thousands. Really interesting. Tony is, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, he is more working class, but he's so smart. Like he's able to segment his brain. He's focusing on these things with meadow. Meanwhile, though, he's still thinking about this guy. He saw, he knows he has to, to take care of that in some way. And I think that's, that's really important how he's able to segment things back to Carmela and Father Phil, they're having this, you know, intellectual conversation that maybe Carmela doesn't get elsewhere. Like this is her outlet. Um, she's using Father Phil for these conversations. Uh, you know, I, I'm okay with a lot of Father Phil's lessons. I think he has some good stuff. You know, he's very 21st century. He gives her the book. He's like, you know, Buddhism and Islam get a bad rap now, but they weren't, they weren't, always like that. It's just in current time, people consider them in a, in a bad light or whatever. So good for, good for father Phil for being open-minded. Meadow meets some girls who go to Colby, one of the colleges she's looking at. It's awesome. Tony just pawns her off on them and hurries off. So Tony goes to call Christopher who got the info on the car that, that the supposed snitch was driving. So Tony got the plates when they were following him. He checks it. It's from, for Frederick Peters, which Tony sees as a good moniker for Febby Petrullio. Tony says, you know, go tell go tell Big Pussy and Polly about this. Like, they're going to have a lot more emotion because some of their friends were actually locked up here. Pe- they lost a friend in prison because of this guy, Petrullio. Father Phil and Carmella eat dinner. Dr. Melfi calls the Soprano household to reschedule her appointment with Tony. This is where Carmela finds out that Dr. Melfi is a female, not a male, as Tony has pretended that she was. And immediately, you know, Carmela assumes that the only reason Tony would lie about this because of his history, too, is that he must be sleeping with her. So she feels completely horrible. And I think rightfully so. And then, you know, Father Phil reiterates a message that Carmela feels is, you know, therapy is a good start for Tony, but it doesn't fix the soul. And he mentions that Tony must be really unhappy. But we see here this theme of depression. Carmella is probably just as unhappy too in her own way and and that shouldn't be overlooked meanwhile tony sneaks to the guy's house who he's been following petrullio as we know him to be right away we see petrullio isn't really a good guy like he's mean to his daughter who wants to be tucked in and i think this is a shortcoming for the writers i think tony's kill later on would have been so much more important so much more meaningful and shocking for the audience. If we see Petrullio being loving and caring to his daughter here, right? If he was like, Oh, let me go, let me go tuck you in, honey. If we see that parallel between Meadow and Tony and Petrullio and his daughter, I think it would have been much more meaningful and a much better episode. If that happened.
2: I don't know. I almost kind of, I kind of disagree. I'm like, it's like, just because someone's a shithead, does that mean that they deserve to die or, you know, even if, he's a bad father i don't necessarily think it was
0: it was weaker that's fair he didn't deserve well we don't know if he deserved to die but just because someone's a shithead doesn't mean they deserve to die for
1: sure i must have overlooked that part i mean i I remember the scene (laughs) um because i mean he still jumps out of the hot tub to go tuck her in so
0: his wife does and then she's
1: like i want to see dad too and she's like oh he's coming he's like all right <laughs> it's so, like, begrudgingly. I I mean, have you ever been in a hot tub? It's so hard to get out. Like, <laughs> you know? So is he a bad guy
0: because he didn't want to get out of a hot yeah, tub? I mean, he Cheers, you literally I literally never want to get
2: out of a hot tub. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's so hard. A <laughs> I was at Drew's house maybe ten years ago and we were practicing holding our holding our breath in a hot tub which is a pretty dangerous game if you think about it in hindsight. But I swear, Drew was Drew was like under the water for probably, it had been a long time. And I was like, all right, I'll start counting now. And if it gets up to a minute, which is, is stupid, I should have, you know, got him out sooner. But then I was like, if it gets to a minute, I will, I'll get him out. And so I got <laughs> up to like 52 seconds after like already waiting a pretty long time. <laughs> and drew like pops his head up he's like oh do you think that was a minute um, <laughs> this is just like two two guys in their 20s uh just being complete idiots
1: there there's something though about like even when i was younger you know everybody wants to know how long they can hold their breath for and like a hot tub is just like <laughs> the best spot for it. i don't know because it's warm and oh
2: your ready. heart rate is you know low and you're relaxed yeah and is the- your heart rate low I mean, lower than when I'm upside down in a kayak, like (laughs) in rap rivers. In in a river, I can hold my breath for like four
0: seconds. (laughs) What's the longest you've been underwater flipped over in a kayak? Because, like, you're in rapids, you get flipped over, and you might not. Or I guess you pull the skirt and you could be under the wrap. Yeah. That,
2: I, I, right? You know, not super long. Every once in a while, uh, I would like swim a rapid on purpose and you'd like get into the pocket of, you know, where you know, you're going to go deep. So maybe like, like 10 seconds feels like so long. Um, oh yeah. But every, the because worst, you can't do anything You yeah. can't Swim anywhere. Right. Yeah. Um, the worst is like sometimes your boat, in a kayak gets stuck in a hole so it's recirculating and you just get flipped over and over a bunch and uh that hasn't happened in a while but uh, it's just like the worst feeling ever (laughs) you're just like because you'll you'll roll yourself up and then you're up for not that long and then you go underwater again and uh you basically have to pull your skirt to get flushed out
1: that's so scary what does pull your skirt mean
2: you're wearing like a spray skirt And that goes over the cockpit of your boat so that...
0: So it's around your waist, right? Yeah.
2: And it's so that you can roll over, water doesn't get into your boat, or you're upright and water splashes onto you. Because when your boat fills up with water, it'll sink. And then then you're just...
0: Oh, really? Yeah. If your boat fills up with water, it'll sink? Yeah. You can put
2: like float (laughs) bags in it and then it'll, you know, be somewhat buoyant. But otherwise, it can definitely just like sink to the bottom.
1: It was about four years ago. I was with my... Uh, roommate off. We were at Marine Street Beach, and he had a. Where's that? Um, uh, just north of Windensea. and okay, like San, San Diego. Okay, like San Diego area. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I know. Um,
0: yeah. We have fans. We have fans all over the world, Josh. So that's <laughs> yeah, why I'm trying yeah. to narrow it. San Diego, California, USA.
1: Yeah. Got it. And so we had a stand-up paddleboard, and he had a river kayak that he would fish out of. And I had done ocean kayaking before, and so I was like, "Hey, man, do you care if I take the kayak out?" He's like, "No, go for it." So I take it out and uh, I'm, I'm going, I, I go south. I get probably like two miles south. I'm past wind and sea and I start to turn around and like this the swells start coming up. And so I'm paddling and I'm probably 400 yards offshore. I'm behind the break. I can see surfers in front of me. And I don't know what happened if I got tired or maybe the kayak was too small because I'm a pretty tall guy, but <laughs> I flipped it. And so uh, I was like, oh, no big deal. I flipped a kayak before. I know how to Get it back over, but what I didn't know was there's a river kayak, and so it didn't have a didn't have a drain plug. So
0: so this this thing just
1: this thing starts Drew uh,
0: Drew gets the inside joke. I didn't get it right away.
1: (laughs) So this thing starts sinking, and I was like, huh, what am I gonna do here?
2: And also he's at like the most territorial surf spot in San Diego. Yeah. (laughs) They do not have kayak, they do not have time for peasants. And it's
1: a, and to make matters worse, it's a bright pink kayak. And so, <laughs> um, so what I did was it it uh, the kayak um, paddle was attached to the kayak by a surf leash, uh, in case you ever dropped it, like it wouldn't just go floating away. So I put the paddle inside the kayak, which was half filled with water. It kind of looked like the Titanic right before it starts <laughs> sinking it's like nose is in the water and it's just sticking up with its stern in the air and before so I it breaks put, in half yeah <laughs> so i put the kayak in there i leash i put the leash uh around my foot that's attached to the kayak and i start swimming in my mind i'm like okay worst case scenario this thing sinks and i just buy my buddy a new one um i think he had gotten off craigslist for like 20 bucks so and so it's like definitely not nice and yeah i, I swim i start making an angle try not to go straight into shore because one it was rocky so i had to get to the actual beach and uh and these surfers are just howling at me like what are you doing you idiot like get away like like this is our area and i was like guys i you think this was on purpose and uh, (laughs) luckily i'm a strong swimmer and uh, i wasn't drinking at the time uh and so i i get into you know the where the waves start breaking and uh lifeguard actually swims out and he's like what are you doing? I was like, it's, <laughs> I was like, dude, my kayak just, you know, it, it filled with water and I'm i am doing my best here, buddy. And, uh, he's like, do you know how to swim? I was like, yeah, I'm doing fine. He's like, okay, like what's your plan to get it through the the break? And I was like, I was going to put it in front of me and, and ride it to the side. And so I got in fine, no injuries, but <laughs> there's literally a crowd on the beach, like circled up and, I'm, and drew, I'm sure you can attest to this. When you get a kayak that's filled with water, it's like nine hundred pounds. Oh, it's so heavy! <laughs> and so I like tip it over, and luckily my buddy who I was with, um he saw what went down, so he met me on the beach and like we emptied it and lifted it and put it in my truck and and, and got it home. But some old lady came up to me and she's like, "Oh my god, did you think you were gonna die?" And I was like, <laughs> "I was like, no, I was I was okay, but." Um, it was one it's of those really situations-
0: embarrassing die from embarrassment it was,
1: it was almost past the point of embarrassment where i was like well it, there's really nothing i can do but it was it was definitely a scene and i felt like a, a big old idiot it's
2: like the worst beach to do that too
0: i feel for you josh
1: i didn't go back there for for a few weeks
0: i was gonna say that's your last time at wind sea to this day
1: <laughs> i was just like oh
0: kayaks hot tubs all right back at the soprano <laughs> household father phil and carmela <laughs> talk movies which i enjoyed these references they're not on the nose he talks about last temptation of christ and taxi driver they reference both martin scorsese movies drew do you know what else martin scorsese directed the irishman yeah that's right also good the departed the departed too yeah what else Casino. gangs of new york gangs of new york raging bull father phil says you know if you take everything jesus said it only amounts to two hours of talk and Carmelo goes, I heard the same thing about the Beatles, except it was if you add up all their songs, it only comes to 10 hours. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> they're not really seeing eye to eye, but... Yeah, it's, I was confused
2: by that, but I, th- I don't think I got the, like, irony of it.
0: it. Well, she just, yeah, is trying to relate, and it's clearly something that that's, like, the closest she can get to relating, I think. And he just he just says, yes, <laughs> and it <then> keeps going. <laughs> uh, but... I actually thought this conversation aged well. Carmela's talking about, you know, I don't understand how the sun can set on the unjust and the just alike. And Father Phil talks to her, you know, it's so we can accept and tolerate those who are different than us. And this is 1999 to 2020. That actually, that lesson is is still very important today, I think. So I actually really, I really liked Father Father Phil's lessons uh, throughout this. We go back to Maine and we have this this really the sequence I really love of, of Tony and then Petrullio s- kind of stalking each other. They're both they're both detectives trying to find each other out. I don't think I mentioned it, but the dog starts barking when Tony was at Petrullio's house, so he runs off. So Petrulio sees his shape. He sees a car drive off, and he was in the witness protection program, so he knows his mob instincts kicked in for sure. Tony's walking downtown. He sees his hardware store. He gets an idea, so... And then meanwhile, Petrulio goes to see a mechanic and asks if anyone in this, in this small town has been asking about him. Tony goes to a phone book to try to look up different, uh, he had Frederick Peters was the name he had. So he finds, you know, a travel business in the phone book that says Peters and it says, ask for Fred. Petrulio goes to a restaurant, asked, which is actually the restaurant that Meadow is at currently, Tony was at earlier, asked the bartender. So you get this element of suspense of these guys trying to find each other out. I thought that was really unique and a really cool sequence. Soprano household, Carmela and Father Phil are watching remains of the day. Carmela grows emotional and she has this confession here too. And I think this is I was I was rewatching this. This is probably the, you know, third or fourth time I've seen this episode and I've I've read the script a couple times for this episode, but this is where I this last time I I realized I was like this is where Sopranos is starting to step away from gangster classics where we see Tony's actions really affecting his family here too. You know, she opens up. I mean, she's Catholic. She doesn't believe in divorce. She believes Tony's still good at heart, so she has that conflict, but she wanted she wanted what's best for her children. She rationalizes why why she's in this toxic situation with Tony. She wanted good schools, good education for her children and a comfortable life. So, Josh, what did you think of this? This rationalization and
1: Carmela confessing? Did you buy into it? Did you not? It was hard for me to buy in. I, on one hand, I was like, I know Ka- Carmela is kind of seducing uh, the father, but at the same time, you know, they're pretty drunk, so she probably wants to get stuff off her chest. And even in the confession, though, she was still being kind of sly, you know, not getting into the details of, she's like, my husband's done terrible things, probably, you know, like all little cop outs. Um, well, I
0: don't think she, do you think she knows what he does? fully. I do. I think her and Father Phil probably know, I mean, they know Tony is in the mob. Everyone does.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess to the extent what she knows, that's a good point. But I, I kind of tend to believe that she's got a pretty good idea. But overall, I kind of bought the confession. It seemed, It seemed pretty real. I thought the more interesting side of that was the reaction from Father Phil where he was almost like, you could see it. He just, he didn't care. He just wanted to like hook up with her. <laughs> um, and so he's just kind of going along playing and using this as a seduction tactic. So I thought that was kind of really, what do you think, Drew?
2: Yeah, I guess I kind of disagree. I don't know. I really feel for Carmela when you think of like, what would you do if you're in her shoes and being Catholic and really not thinking of divorce as being an option. I mean, You'd just be in like so much pain, and then yeah, I do think Father Phil. I don't know, just the whole their whole interactions reminded me of like being in high school and like watching a movie with like a girl that you liked, and just being like so nervous, and you're just it's like for like two and a half hours, you're like, are we gonna kiss? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I really felt for Carmela, and um, it's just a very tense kind of awkward scene, especially with the lighting, and then also with like the thunder and lightning uh when when he first comes so you're really anticipating you know what's going to come
0: they did a really good job building the tension up but yeah i so i don't think she was necessarily trying to seduce him at all i think she is like very repressed intellectually and she doesn't have that type of companionship at all in tony like she tries to talk to tony for a few seconds early in the episode and he hangs up on her and and so even if it wasn't sexual at all for her, I think she would still be seeking that that attention from, not attention, that's not the right word, but still seeking that companionship from Father Phil. And I do think she gets that reward out of the religious aspects of it too. If
1: Father Phil would have made a move, do you think she would have said something? Like, oh, Father, you shouldn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, Father. Uh,
0: here, I'm not sure. Here I saw later on when they have that moment I think they were they were both on board with that uh, later on here. I'm not sure. And I guess, Josh, your point. So I, I'm with Drew where I bought in. I do really feel for Carmela. I mean, everything makes sense to me on why she'd be so conflicted. But I have that David Chase, who's the creator, interview in my head too, where he says, you know, all, the characters are always lying. And I'm always thinking, like, is she part of this? Is she playing a game, too? But from here, I I, I don't think so. At the motel, uh, Petrulio has tracked down Tony to the motel, so he sees Soprano's on the on the guest list, and he actually sees Tony and Meadow. He waits out there. He sees Tony and Meadow coming back. He aims to kill Tony, but there's some people nearby, and he doesn't kill them. I personally really dislike when the hero in a show or a movie is saved by chance, and then the villain doesn't get like those same chances. Like the hero later will just kill the villain or whatever. But like, they, it's just like a fluke that saves the hero early on. I really don't like that. And I think of Breaking Bad again, too, is like Walter White throughout that whole series, especially early on, is like completely reckless and is just saved by like flukes and chants and other characters taking care of him. And then he like kills a couple villains at the end. And like, all of a sudden, he's the kingpin. It's like, dude, you really lucked out for two to two and a half seasons of this <laughs> or so. I don't know. What do you guys think?
1: I agree with you. Like it is. It's kind of unfulfilling when these chance occurrences happen. Also, was that like the world's biggest gun, or is there like a sil- a silencer on it or something? It There's was a sil-
0: silencer on it. Yeah. I was like, this thing is huge. Um, <laughs>
1: That's all you could find this long gun. I was like, be a little discreet here. <laughs> <laughs> You're committing murder, dude. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. To your point, it's it's really unfair. I guess you know it, it's kind of like Roadrunner Coyote the way I think about it. It's like <laughs> the coyote always in the wrong place at the wrong time gets yeah. gets, gets <laughs> no <laughs> gets no help. It's like these these protagonists or
0: anti-heroes are supposed to be like these intellectual champions, especially Walter White or something. And it's like, dude, you lucked out that all of those drug dealers didn't just kill you early on. That was just all lucky, and now you you kind of fell into place. Sopranos gets away from that, but this is very I was. Um, I was not pleased with that. Father Phil and Carmela. Uh, Father Phil suggested she should take communion. He gets his uh, to-go communion kit, which I thought was awesome. And it's a it's a very sensual scene as, you know, she's taking the wafer and the wine. The part I loved the most was when Father Phil takes the wine and just downs the rest <laughs> I mean, Josh, were you thinking that Carmela was going to hook up with Father Phil at this point?
1: I actually wasn't a hundred percent convinced um mm-hmm. i i don't i was kind of waffling uh i was yeah because you know she early on in the exchange in the episode that she was definitely treating it as you know a priest and uh, a f- uh, follower uh relationship and, and then it's definitely moving on more and more but i also think she might be seeing that maybe she doesn't want to betray his you know make him do something he doesn't want to do um yeah especially when there's he just pounded wine.
0: It's like four gulps when he finishes the sacrament <laughs> wine. <laughs> Back to Maine. Chris and Tony are on the pay are on the phone with each other. Chris says he wants to come handle Petrulio. You know, we see what appears to be. I'm like, oh wow, yeah, we've seen Chris's loyalty here. Tony tells him to stay put. He has to handle it on his own. Chris does reveal he wants to. He really just wants to be made, and so that's where I'm like, just thinking again, like. These characters aren't showing their cards. He's making it seem like he's very loyal. But really, you know, inside, like all of us, we have this ulterior motive. I want to talk for a sec on what it means to be a made man in the Mafia. I know, I mean, I've just pieced this together from reading Wikipedia and watching Goodfellas and other movies about what it means to be made. But it it's a ceremony for, it's your, I guess, induction into the Mafia. So it's a very, I mean, they treat it like a very sacred or religious moment where you um you take the code of silence someone else who's made has to sponsor you and then you're officially a soldier in the mafia so people can't rise ranks until you're made and you do have to be you do have to be you used to have to be 100 sicilian i think you can be italian just italian now i do believe you have to be 100 percent. the idea is once you're made that offers protection like no one can fuck with you. You have the ability to fuck with anyone else who isn't made. And the only way to kill a made person is you have to get permission from a boss or something like that. So to climb the ranks, Chris really wants to be made. We go back to Carmela and Father Phil and they're asleep next to each other on the ground. AJ calls and says he's staying the night at his friend's house. There's this very tense moment where Father Phil and Carmela are seemingly about to kiss. But fortunately, uh, there's divine intervention and Father Phil goes and throws up. Carmella calls Tony back at the hotel and hangs up. And I saw this as I thought she, I mean, she's already upset with him because Dr. Melfi called. She found out Melfi was a female. I thought she was trying to reach out because she felt bad about even thinking about anything with Father Phil. But then second guess is that.
1: I I agree. I think she was calling him uh, probably just to check in and, and kind of give herself peace of mind. Like, okay, I almost did something bad. I should should probably reach out to my husband and, you know, maybe not let him know that I didn't do it, but just be like, hey i'm here how are you doing and then she was kind of like ah screw that like he's a jerk like he's been acting he hasn't called me once or, or the one time he did call me it was for about 15 seconds so she didn't want to give him that pleasure it seemed like but then on the flip side i was like when tony answered the phone and said hello and nobody picked up i was wondering if that was freaking him out like is somebody coming after him like is uh you know is the guy he's oh, chasing yeah. flipping like I, I was wondering if tony was going to get get paranoid because of you know Fabian Petrulio, like maybe look at going after him so I, I had that in my mind but obviously Tony didn't really care <laughs> I yeah I saw it as like oh Carmela at least has like
0: some semblance of decency you know she and I don't think Tony would obviously Tony does much worse things and doesn't think to call her in the morning uh Tony and Meadow are leaving he gives Meadow a wet willy which I thought was hilarious uh Petrulio is still watching them and he watches them drive off Tony Drops Meadow off at Colby the College and, you know, lies and tells her, you know, he has to get his watch from the motel. The next morning, Father Phil expresses regret over the previous night. I'm confused by Carmela. Carmella seems frustrated. I think frustrated that she was put in that position by him, who she maybe felt safe with. And she said, you know, is there a commandment against eating ZD? We didn't do anything. Go get your sacrament kit or whatever, she says, which I thought was hilarious. We go with just Petrulio for a scene. He's at his travel agency. This scene, we should be mentioned. So this scene only exists because HBO wanted David Chase to put it in. So he's trying to convince two drug addicts to go kill Tony and Meadow. You know, they they tell him no way and they leave. They wanted Petrullio... HBO wanted Petrullio to be a drug dealer because that would, that would get the audience more behind the fact like, oh, he's a bad guy because he's a drug dealer, which is completely absurd that HBO forced David Chase to put this scene in because... First of all, Petrulia was in the mob. He ratted on all his friends. He's probably the reason that Tony's father eventually never recovered from emphysema and died. He's cruel to his daughter, and HBO was just like, "Oh no, put in that he's also a drug dealer because that's what's going to get the audience behind it too." So I thought this was the scene was a major pitfall.
2: Yeah, I thought. Yeah, I thought it was a little, little much to to have him be forcing these like drug dealers' hands.
0: What's he like? Take a shotgun on the highway or whatever and shoot him from the <laughs> yeah. car. It's yeah, like, like <laughs> that's
2: gonna fucking work
0: with these. Have you seen too many action movies? <laughs> so Petrulio hears a noise outside. Travel agency, there's this moment where Tony's stalking him. Maybe a trope. He like sees, oh, the noise is just a deer. And then Tony comes out of nowhere, starts to kill him. He calls Tony Teddy, which is kind of weird. And Again, the, the hustle doesn't stop, Tony says, when, when Petrullio is like, oh, I saw you last night. You're with your daughter. I, that's why I didn't kill you. But Tony reads right through it and pretty viciously kills Petrullio here. But then right after he kills them, you guys know what he sees, right? Oh, the ducks? He sees the ducks. <laughs> Damn ducks. And I don't know. I, I saw this as maybe these actions continue to drive his family away to a certain level but he's very familiar with it. Like he's killed several people before. And I thought too, like no matter how depressed Tony is, and Mm -hmm. he, he is really struggling a lot. There is in a sick, twisted way. These incidences, you know, he kills this guy. There's some spark of life in him. He gets kind of brought back and jump started. And it's just, maybe Josh, that's what you said. That's the sign of a sociopath. Maybe Tony picks Meadow up at the college he lies about her, about the watch, you know, and he completely flips. He's like, oh, we're off to Bowdoin now. He, like he literally just killed a guy and he's just, he's old cheery, which I mean, I think it's just shows how amazing of an anti-hero he is. Like he is, it's not confusing. It's just a contradiction. He shows he's, he is a sociopath. Metal sees Tony's shoes are dirty and he's bleeding. Now she's smart and he realizes that, you know, she's, she's figuring this out, but he, you know, blames everything really. He's like, oh, you were. You were drunk last night when I was on the pay phone. He he just continues to lie his way out of it. Tony's waiting uh, in one of like the waiting rooms at the college and sees the quote on the wall. No man can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be true, which is a Hawthorne quote. I thought that was, I thought it was a little stupid. I was like, again, that's too on the nose. You're telling us exactly what this episode and the series is supposed to be about But then I I looked up where that quote was from, and it's from the book, The Scarlet Letter, which is about a minister who breaks his vows and sleeps with a woman. And I thought that was the greatest Sopranoception moment. (laughs) So I came around to it. I was just like, these two stories came together into this this Scarlet Letter reference. And I thought that was amazing. Did you ever
1: read The Scarlet Letter in uh, high school?
0: I didn't have to read it in high school. I read it a year or two ago. Did you read it in high school? Yeah. It's old. Old books are hard to read. They are. <laughs> it's, it's old. old. <laughs> I just read this book, uh, Tess of the Dubervilles by Thomas Hardy, which is a very famous book, but you wouldn't know it by reading it because it put me to sleep pretty much every night. And it's, it's one of those where it's like, literally, like I could take a step back and look at a paragraph and I'm like, wow, that is really well written. But just reading one after another, I, it's, it's a lot. It's too much. Tony and Meadow get home uh Carmelo confesses to Tony oh. that
1: did anybody notice in this scene they arrive in the suburban but they were driving around in a sedan the whole time
2: no I didn't
1: uh, well the suburban's Tony's car right you think they rented the car for driving upstate I don't know but it really bothered me but Drew it was red isn't it red? <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't I didn't catch that <laughs> oh come on Drew like why why would they switch the car like that yeah I mean I guess unless they rented it or, or whatnot I don't know I was like huh that's an odd thing to throw in there
0: they get home. Carmela confesses that Father Phil spent the night at the house. And the only way Tony can believe that Father Phil spent the night is believing that Father Phil is gay, which is a weird pseudo masculinity. I think that you see a lot like really insecurity is, is putting that in place, or at least I think so. And then Carmela has the, the great zinger, you know, Tony gets everyone else except Carmela. She's like, oh, your therapist called Jennifer and walks away. And I mean, Tony's reaction alone, I think, deserves or James Gandolfini's reaction to that deserves every award out there. And the episode ends. OK, let's get into the intermezzo this week. So this week specifically, I want to talk about inspirational African-American art and artists that, that we get a lot of inspiration from. And so, I mean, we I think live in a, especially now, it's a paramount to celebrate this type of material, support it, learn from it. Uh, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement and it's, all these resources are giving us free material so you know Amazon Prime Netflix they're putting this material out for us and I think especially <laughs> if people see themselves as wanting to take as many perspectives as possible it makes so much sense to take advantage of it so I want to start I want to focus on writing specifically just because I get a lot of inf- inspiration for my screenwriting and as I'm trying to craft new new screenplays and stories so first, James Baldwin, who was a writer. And I read his book, Go Tell It on the Mountain a few years ago. And that was one of the first books to ever, I actually like cried during the book. And it's just about a kid growing up in Harlem and the influences of his family and religion and all these all these aspects of his life. So it was, it was really powerful too. And actually, Baldwin's take on the American dream helped influence one of the screenplays I wrote, which is called Heart of America. So I wrote that a few years ago. But It's about some of the inequity in Chicago in the 1940s. So I've gotten a lot of inspiration from that. There's also a really good documentary on Amazon Prime right now, I Am Not Your Negro, which is about one of Baldwin's latest works. And I just think he's one of the most intelligent minds ever. The second person is Jordan Peele. So we know him from Key and Peele, but I think he really shifted into screenwriting and filmmaking after Key and Peele. And specifically Get Out was just one of the most amazing screenplays I've ever read and an awesome movie but i think for anyone studying film interested in movies i mean you must read get out it's it's truly amazing and then currently as i'm trying to digest more and more material too i started reading i know why the caged bird sings which somehow it's by maya angelou somehow i never had to read that in school so it's it's been on my radar but never actually sat down to read it so that's what i'm currently reading i was attracted the title is just like i was thinking about it my like, god that is so
1: beautiful and tragic on its own you know bill clinton bill clinton had maya angelo do his uh she either did like a poem for him on his inauguration um or did a reading or something and i think she was one of the first uh black uh or one of the first females no matter race to to do something like that for uh, during a president inauguration
0: good for him that's that's really solid call out um i looked up though i was interested just about the title because i was like oh that is really poignant and i I always think of the morgan freeman quote in the shawshank redemption you know some birds aren't meant to be caged which i know is completely different too but it made me think of that but then i looked up where it came from and it's so she got it from another african-american poet in the 1800s named paul
1: laurence dunbar josh how about you uh growing up in san diego um and being a big baseball fan uh tony Gwynn was always an idol and someone i looked up to uh not just for what he did on the field um but also, you know, his work ethic and what he, what he did to the community. He was always involved, um, always had had time to give back and just really a good person. Um, and, you know, I went to Padre games a lot growing up and uh, he even he actually played basketball at San Diego State, too, um, before. He, oh, no way. But yeah, before he became his point guard, I think. But yeah, he, I always, you know, his work ethic was uh, second to none. He was the first person to bring in video analysis um, into baseball he would videotape he would rewatch the tapes of his game and, and try to um get his swing better and, and watch the pitchers and try to pick up tendencies so uh, just the creativeness that he went about baseball is such an old sport people get stuck in their ways and he was able really to kind of bring some new age things to it to help accelerate his game so i've always kind of uh, taken a liking to that and then um morgan freeman has been another person for me um just his, his whole perspective uh if, with a few interviews that I've watched has, has been great where he he's just grinds. He's just the hardest working, one of the hardest working guys. And, you know, he knows that he was behind the eight ball, but he was kind of an inspiration to me being like, yeah, you know, I, I might have certain privileges that other people don't. Uh, and if I don't succeed when he succeeded without those, it's like so much more of a letdown in a way, you know, he's like, it, And I use that as inspiration to be like, if he can do it out of anybody with where he came, I grew up in Memphis, I believe. And, uh, -hmm. I use that as someone who I really admire on the screen and just use that as fuel to really motivate myself because, um, know, it's easy to, to slack off. Um, but like you said last week with Kobe Bryant, like you got to find motivation to just get up every morning and and do something. And and when you see these people reach their peaks and, and where they came from with the right amount of work and, and and a little bit of luck here and there you know you can actually do good th- great things so what's your favorite morgan freeman movie Ooh, it's tough it might be i like Seven. Ooh, all right i know that's, that's like a, great a one you know not a not a typical one um yeah. <laughs> one of my, what a good one growing up oh uh, deep impact it's not a great movie <laughs> but <laughs> it was like is he the know. president in that? Movie? yeah he is oh nice um that's awesome and of course, Shawshank is good. Um, is it's great. hard not to love that. Yeah, yeah. Bruce Almighty is God. <laughs> <laughs> He's done it all. He, he really has. I love Shawshank.
0: I love Unforgiven. I love Million Dollar Baby. I think, and then I I love Glory too. Glory's one of the best. I mean, I'm in tears by the end of that movie every time. Drew, how about you? You
2: know, I'm embarrassed not to have a more unique black or african-american inspirational person but i just listened to uh, oprah's book what i know for sure and mm. uh i don't know i definitely strive to just be a positive and kind person try to be as zen as possible <laughs> and grateful yeah. and uh i just like people where it's like after you spend time with them not even necessarily in person but you feel better than you did before and i think she's just like so incredibly powerful and anything she's like it just as a kid i'd kind of like you know you know of her and then this girl i was dating in college would watch the Oprah show and i remember being like oh that's weird it's like a girl talk show thing you know just being like <laughs> so
0: just like ignorant the most 20 year old guy to
2: yeah
1: <laughs>
2: and now i'm just like just take whatever she says as gold and uh um, just really really inspired by her
0: so Back to our last Coppola criteria, uh let's go into the pitfalls a little bit. We mentioned a lot of these, so I'll, I'll touch on some of them, but I think this was a pitfall they made. Febby Petruglio, the snitch that Tony kills, they made him unlikable. And I think that takes away from that takes away from the act of of actually killing him. You know, if you're going to make a villain or this anti-hero, you got to go full board, I think. If making him likable and still giving Tony a reason to to kill him, that is really what makes, I think Great writing and a great TV show. Uh, also, there's a moment Petrulio when he goes to the mechanic to say when he's finding out like, oh, Tony's following him. He asks the mechanic, he's like, oh, has anyone been asking for me? And then he like hurries back to his car because this these two people are walking by because his gun is out on the front seat, his the longest gun in the world. As Josh pointed out, it's like, dude, are you really going to leave your gun on the front seat of the car? <laughs> like, is yeah. there another way to show that he means business without putting? I'm all for less is more in TV shows. I don't think you need to show any gun at that point. Game of Thrones is victim to this. They especially later on, they just to show someone was bad, they had to have them say like an on the nose line, like "I'm gonna kill your" or "I'm gonna eat your parents." I think one of the wildlings say at one point. It's like, dude, he didn't need to say that. You know that guy's a bad guy. Is this written for sixth graders? Come on. Yes. And then, (laughs) and then i had for a pitfall at the motel when petrullio's aiming to kill tony i mentioned that too the heroes just luckily getting out of situations by chance and then you know the villains aren't awarded those same chances later on
1: anything you guys want to argue i don't i don't think that having petrullio be unlikable is a pitfall because my thought was i was kind of on his on tony's side like this guy should get whacked like he Mm -hmm. would he, he betrayed you know, his family, the mob. And so you kind of already knew what, what type of person he was and, and he was a survivor. And sometimes, you know, like rats, you know, they abandon ship, they uh, they will find the way out no matter how difficult it is or who they, they leave behind. So I think they kind of kept him true to that, that character. Um, but I do understand where you're coming from, where if he was a likable guy, um, it would have made the killing more meaningful. And And maybe I'm coming at it from a perspective of, I didn't, since I didn't watch the show right when it came out, I didn't see the significance of that first kill from a protagonist like that. It was probably shocking as it was when it came out for sure,
0: because people hadn't seen that before. I'm just so desensitized by people doing horrendous things on TV. <laughs> that I wanted I wanted something more evil out of that. And I think that that would have hit home more. Drew, you made that point earlier too. And I think it's really important for people to hear is, you know, just because he had unlikable traits, he was kind of rude to his his daughter. He sold drugs. He didn't des- necessarily deserve to die though from it. And that that is a good distinction, I think. Did you have any other pitfalls, Drew? It
2: kind of bothered me how reckless Tony was with driving. Like I thought showing that the two faces to Meadow, uh, I was like, this is a little blunt.
0: The driving bothered me. It's like, dude, I mean there's safer ways to pass cars i know he's he's frantic i think that that wasn't a writer error it was like a director error they made it and editing too the editing was kind of weird when she's like dad stop stop and he's like you're just talking to me that's why i went left or whatever it was was
1: confusing to me yeah i think to jump off on drew's point too it's there was tony wasn't subtle at all you know he, he was just very out there and it's like this is your daughter who just 10 minutes ago asked you if you're in the mob and now you're yeah. chasing down this guy <laughs> yeah. and and making up all these crazy lies on the spot that, you know, kind of impressed that you are able to think of all that stuff in like half a second. But like, I thought he, I thought the best way he could have gotten out of the, that line stuff would have been when she goes, Oh, did you get in a fight or something? And he should have been like, yeah, I had to beat this guy up. Like he was a, uh, you know, he disrespected your mother or something. I don't know, like which would have made sense for the blood and the shoes and everything. But yeah, I thought the, the, the lack of um secrecy that he was but he yeah he was very uh forward with all his actions in front of his daughter and i felt that kind of be unbelievable in a way let's do
0: a decision deep dive i just want to talk a little bit about tony's decision to actually whack Febby petrullio on his own he didn't bring anyone else up he actually went through with it while he was on the trip with his daughter you think that was the right thing josh what do you think about it
1: i do um i think tony was kind of thinking it. this could be a now or never Especially if he had spooked him, that could have led to him fleeing, you know, moving to Montana or something. Um, if he did value his life that much, so I think there was definitely a sense of urgency. Uh, he could have easily called uh, Big Pussy or, or somebody else, which he had told uh, told him to do. But we never saw from that, so that might have been a pitfall. I've never seen seen that uh, interaction come through, but I, I thought it was appropriate. Um, I don't know about the way that he went about it, you know. By being super reckless with Meadow in the car. But I think with the sense of urgency and probably what he was thinking, I think it was the right move.
0: I think he told Chris to tell Big Pussy and Polly about that he saw Petrulio. He didn't. And I don't think he co- told him to call them yet um, because Tony felt like he had to do it himself. Like he felt that ownership over it. Drew, what do you think? Yeah, I think it was like
2: definitely personal. He wanted to whack this guy and he, he wanted to just get revenge and he wanted it now. So but yeah, on your daughter's trip, a little strange.
0: But I think he would have he would have fled the scene or something is is a potential for that. So I think maybe the only other alternative was he could have called someone else to do it. I think about Drew, did you watch The Last Dance? The Michael Jordan documentary came out. Ah, I still haven't
2: finished the last episode.
0: <laughs> well, early on, Drew, you might remember this part. They're talking about Scotty Pippen needed to have surgery at the end of one of the seasons, but he didn't. He waited till the season, the next season to get the surgery, so he missed a bunch of time as kind of a way to get back at the owner of the Bulls because he had a bad contract. And they asked Phil Jackson, the coach of the Bulls, you know, were you angry at Scotty for doing that, and putting, you know, jeopardizing the season and and Phil has like a really good, I mean, he's the Zen master and he's one of the greatest coaches ever, but he says, you know, I didn't blame Scotty for that because that was that was Scotty's way of feeling that how he'd be able to overcome that relationship with management. Like Scotty felt like by doing that, by delaying the surgery, he was getting back at them and they were going to create some an even keel so to speak. So Phil thought that players had to go through those those personal growth moments, so he wasn't angry at Pippen for doing that. And I think that was Tony deciding to whack Fabio Petrullio. Tony could have called one of his other guys up to do it, but I think he really felt like he had to, he had to do that for himself. The only way he was going to be able to live with himself, the only way he was going to be okay with it, was he had to seek that vengeance on his own. So the awards, best death, still body count of one, but this is actually the first kill that Tony has in the whole series. So he kills Febby Petrullio this episode. And we're keeping track of those for the whole season to see what those that best whack or that best that best death throughout the season best comedy scenes. So I have 5 here and then you guys can nominate what you want at the end. But first is when Tony sees Petrulio for the first time at the gas station. He just hangs up on Carmela and he hurries Meadow to the car. He's like, "Meadow, come on." And then just starts zooming off for him. I thought that was awesome. Number 2, Father Phil tells carmelo that if you add up everything Jesus said, it only amounts to 2 hours and she says, "Oh, I heard the same thing about the Beatles." Number 3, Father Phil Downs maybe four gulps of the sacrament <laughs> wine at the end of <laughs> taking communion. It's like, you just needed a sip, Father Phil. Number four, last scene with Tony and Carmela when this whole back and forth, you know, Tony says, the guy spends the night with you and all he does is slip you a wafer. She says, that's verging on sacrilege. Oh, I didn't mean to verge. And actually, so that I only had four of those. So that's what I had. Drew, do you have anything to add? Father Phil said something funny at one point, but I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> just or
1: just, just like, like how just I'm like, Jones
0: in for your baked
2: ziti. He, yeah, he's just Jonesing, just like downing ziti at one point. It's just like he's just like <laughs> so hungry. <laughs> Poor Father Phil. Um, I guess out of those, I think him downing the wine.
0: That was like, pretty right. Yeah. Josh, anything to add? And what would you say?
1: Maybe to add was that I thought that joke that Carmela made uh, the morning after was, I can't remember what she was referencing, but it was something along the like, out of all the priests in the world, you know, I, I get the straight one. <laughs> that was good.
0: Yeah. It was the Cas- Casablanca reference.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. That's what it was. And uh, yeah, I, I thought the wine was just, it was just hysterical.
0: I always love the Tony-Carmela interactions. So for this sake, I'm going to nominate that last scene. Oh, I didn't mean to verge on sacrilege. And then when she tells him, uh, his therapist Jennifer called. That was that was great. Best drama scenes first when Tony reveals to Meadow that a lot some of his money comes from illegal gambling and whatnot. I thought that was really important and great scene between the two of them. Number two, when Carmela confesses to Father Phil and opens about her how she rationalizes staying with Tony. I thought that was really amazing, and that was what started to shift sopranos into getting out of the shadow of those gangster classics and then number three is when when tony waxed feby petrullio at the end i'm gonna say when tony
1: waxed petrullio i think is the best scene i thought kind of that whole sequence yeah i guess from when petrullio thinks he hears something outside to him actually seeing getting killed by tony i thought the whole buildup was pretty good True.
2: I guess, now that Jared's told me the whole backstory about the scene changing, you know, TV forever, uh, <laughs> kind of slays my, <laughs> slays my opinion, but I really like this scene where he's talking to his daughter because I just thought it was a very relatable scene for, you know, there's, there's always going to have something come up with parents and their kids and, you know, finding something out or these tough talks. So I, I, I thought that
0: scene was really relatable. So closing it out, I mean, the way I saw it is this is the episode that starts to scratch the surface of Tony really as that anti-hero. I mean, he has a clear evil goal, Josh, as you said, but then he also has a clearly righteous side is also the other side of it too. And I think that is the perfect dichotomy. And, you know, I'm almost bought into a lot of his rationalizations throughout. It's difficult for me to tell if he's lying, if he's not lying even in these first five episodes so far. And I think that's amazing. And, you know, the contrast I had was with Walter White. And in Breaking Bad, you always know when Walter White is lying or telling the truth. That's part of the fun. You're like, oh, what lie is he going to think of now for Skyler or his family? But it's always straightforward. You know exactly, pretty much exactly what he's thinking throughout. And he makes confusing decisions. The last thing I would say, I think, is it's approachable, too. You know, it's a digestible episode where you... You can come in at any time and you might have not seen any of the other episodes of the Sopranos and you can watch this and, and enjoy it. And I think that's essential for something to be considered the best series ever. You need to be able to approach it. Otherwise it's not going to have that universal impact. Josh, do you have anything else to say about this episode?
1: I really enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, really well done and I like the fact it could stand on its own. I don't know how much is going to be built off this, uh, obviously the uh, the death of the snitch is gonna come up later and meadow going to college and maybe some relationship with the priest but it seems like from the whole story that we've been seeing so far as a whole it wasn't that impactful and i, I could be way way off on that but um i just really enjoyed it i felt like a little mini movie uh kind of take a break from the whole uh, mob characters and 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 the big revolving plot with you know tying everything in and, and just focus on few relationships and really deep dive into it and I just thought it was really well done. Is Tony on pace to be the best anti-hero ever?
0: Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Josh, is he on pace?
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't know. At this point, it's tough to say. Uh, he definitely has all the qualities, um, and is, is on the same level as you know Walter White and, and some of the others we've discussed. Uh, I wouldn't say he's broken away yet. You know, he's it's, it's still early, um, but I guess. He's, at, he's leading with the rest of the pack. So I, if that's the question, I'll go, yeah, he's on pace, but I don't see him as the best yet.
0: I agree. He's in the pack, but he hasn't differentiated himself quite yet, but he's right there. Thank you, everyone, for listening. You can find our podcast and some original scripts I've written at jaredbackins.com, J-A-R-O-D-B-A-C-K-E-N-S. If you'd like, you can follow us on Twitter at Josh Hasn't Seen The Sopranos. And encourage you guys to check out some of the content about some of our great African-American artists on Amazon Prime and Netflix. And if you liked what you heard, give us a rating. If you didn't, then please don't give us a rating. But thanks for listening. And anything else, guys?
1: Uh, just like and subscribe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right on. All right, we'll we'll chat with you guys next time. Episode six coming up.